0: This is Joe Basso from Music Radar, and I'm speaking with Chris Cornell, former singer with Soundgarden, audio slave, and solo artist. Chris, how
1: are you? I'm good. I'm good. I woke up with a, with a good radio voice today. Well, <laughs> then... then, then this then, is like post three three shows in a row of three-hour sets, and, the, and my voice goes down. It looked, if I wasn't on tour, it wouldn't normally be this low. You were telling me before tape started rolling that you just saw the Anvil documentary. Yes, and the it, it, the the tape part was what got me thinking about it. It's a fantastic documentary, by the way, of you know uh, a, a band where the the filmmakers really have a lot of respect for the subjects. You know, they're not making fun of them. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to portray a true story. That, that this is one that has uniqueness, but also there's a universal nature to it as well because there are so many, many, many. Bands and artists and musicians and guitarists that work so hard and against all odds, you know, they continue to do what they do because they love it. But you know, they never reach that brass ring kind of thing. And time affects that so much. And and I, I in the film, and this was you know a recent documentary. It's in fact just released. Yes, the singer's still making demos on cassette tapes and mailing those cassette tapes to uh, people that he wants to hear, like he mails a cassette tape to a producer to listen to their new songs. And it's just funny how in the lives and, and just the habits of like guys in the, that had their heyday in, in a band in the 80s, they're still using cassettes. I, I don't even know where to go to buy a cassette tape now. Um, you can buy them at pharmacies actually. Really? Yes. And I I, I don't have anything... I do think if I really looked hard, I could find something to play it on. Let's start talking about your new record, which is called Scream. Uh Uh-huh. Which
0: is one thing that you're not doing a lot on the record, by the way. You're not screaming a lot.
1: Not really. really. I probably scream more on the songs when I'm doing them live than I do on the album. I do a hell of a lot of singing on it. You do a lot of singing on it. More than I've ever done on anything. Whoops. On the cover, you're smashing a guitar... Mm. No, I'm
0: Where you're about to smash a guitar. I'm flying through the air with a guitar. You're flying through the yeah. air. Um, In the middle of
1: the packaging, I'm you're, smashing
0: You're it. pre-smash. Yeah. But this looks different than kind of a Pete Townsend smash. This seems, unless I'm reading something into it, this seems to have a different implication. What? It, what is there a message behind you about to smash the guitar?
1: Not really. Nothing um, of any weight, really the The initial idea of the image was, a it's a it's a cool image, it's a powerful image. B it's sort of like a, an unapologetic portrayal to the idea that I'm making an album that's not a guitar-based album in right. any way. But it's not it's not like a heavy-handed like statement against guitars. There's guitars on every single song on the album. Obviously, when I tour, like it's pretty much a yeah. like, three-hour event of people playing guitars <laughs> so it was it, but it, it, the initial idea was that sort of you know unapologetic statement that this is going to be a different record this is going to be a different album um, but then it did something else that I didn't really expect which is that it looked a lot based on what I'm wearing my hair was lo- a little longer just like a shot that could have came out of the 1990 Soundgarden tour and in that way I really liked it because it It was sort of like, in a way, image-wise, reclaiming that past, which I kind of ran away from really quickly. There was a period in there. As soon as that was kind of like long-haired, grunge rock god image for people to even talk about or throw around, like the one that was on the cover of Spin magazine or something, I ran from that as fast as I could. Um, You know, I shaved my head. I stopped wearing boots and shorts and whatever else I, you know could do to not look like that.
0: I think a lot of the question on people's mind, uh, because it is a a very different type Mm. of album, is why Timbaland? Why did you want to work with
1: him? Well, it was really a kind of a decision that happened based on conversation. It was a quick call and it was a thought of um, you know, here's somebody, once we got into a conversation about making an album that was really enthusiastic about making the whole album. The idea of working with Timberland, I knew that it wouldn't be like anything else I'd ever done at all. Music it wouldn't sound like anything else. The process of making it wouldn't be like anything else I'd ever done, and that t- totally appealed to me. I always thought about like adding loops and beats and things like that sort of into songs and into albums, but... You know, I've, it, it seemed to me to make more sense to just go headlong into it and really kind of dive into a dramatic, dramatically different direction for, for a minute and, and just kind of rinse everything that I know about making records away from the experience of writing and recording this new record. And, and that happened, pretty much. What did you learn from Timberland? Well, it's a, it's a process, you know, it's different. There are a lot of things that, the first thing you learn, the first thing that I learned is that there is sort of the, this universal language called music where two guys are trusting each other uh, on an endeavor that ended up being like six months long. We're, and we've come. We come from completely different cultures. We come from different places geographically, different musical genres, different everything, and our, and our approaches to writing and recording music are completely different. But yet we we got together and wrote twenty songs in, in six weeks. That's kind of, to me, the the most important thing that I got out of it. That 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 sort of cliche music is the universal universal language, ideal is. It, Intact for me. Mm-hmm. The the if you do the math, you would even I would think like how are these two people going to actually manage to come together given their separate influences? What influences are they going to ha- have to mine to actually be able to write songs and make an album that makes any sense at all? Both of us having such a depth and uh, of. Um, knowledge of music and bands and record collections and influences, it was totally possible, but it was also completely unpredictable. Right. Um, if you listen to, I think if you go and you listen to the first song, part of me, it's uh, kind of, in my mind, what someone might expect from the combination of me and Timbaland. But as the record unfolds, it goes into places that don't sound like any of anybody else's record. doesn't sound like anything I've ever done or he's ever done and that's what's exciting to me about it going into it did you
0: have any idea that it was going to be perceived as such a uh, left turn
1: yeah absolutely that's, that's sort of obvious it's not like I haven't done that before but th- this is more perceptually that for sure to me my my audience there's no such thing really it's sort of, the, of it's a Fractured group of people who are fans from different periods of my career, and then some percentage of those people are fans of everything. Otherwise, it's kind of divided up into hard rock fans, or fans of solo work, or fans of Soundgarden, or fans of Audio Slave, and fan, some fans that only really like things I've done outside of those bands that like the less aggressive music that I've done. But this clearly would be a huge departure from anything any of those fans are used to. Right. That part w- was obvious just in in uh, the thought, in my own mind. Like, making a record with and will definitely make it, you know, everybody's head spin a little bit. I've read
0: comments where you did say that you knew going into it that a, a lot of your audience, or at least a portion of your audience, would probably not like it. Yeah. Did that bother you? Because I, I would think as an artist, of course, you do want uh, people to like your work.
1: Well... It's not that I don't want people to like it. It's that, like, if I sit down with... Like, if you filled this room that we're speaking in with fans of mine and then we all sort of took out iPods or whatever, you know, a sheet of paper and wrote down our favorite songs, my taste in music is probably going to be different from everybody else's and theirs from each other and maybe theirs from mine. And that's sort of what it all boils down to. It's like the idea of... Creating an audience with music to then service that audience has never really made a lot of sense to me. And I think that the artists that I've followed that have been the most important to me in my career have been people that have sort of done what they've felt they wanted to do or needed to do or were inspired to do musically. So the idea of writing a song and, and the um, with the ultimate goal being that a certain group of people like it has to not exist for me. Okay. I could not ever be thinking about that when I write a song. Otherwise, I, I would have a, a difficult time. Do you foresee a time
0: when you're going to go back to doing hard rock?
1: In a sense, I mean, um, A, yeah, yeah, I do that every night on tour, and I tour a lot, so it's still very much a part of my life. And B, I don't, you know, there's, there's never going to be a time when I don't want to, Go write and perform and record a hard rock song that's new. I' you know, it's like I, I almost look at my career of songwriting as trying to like f- always find that moment, that perfect moment, and that perfect song that that somebody else has written, but I've never been able to. Get my hands on, you know. Mm-hmm. There are songs on screen that are like that. Right, Ground Zero was like that. That's a song, you know, that reminds me of artists that I love from the soul period of, of when I was a child. Um, the song Pretty News on on the last uh, on the um, down on the upside Soundgarden album. That's a that, that's a great example of I just wanted to write that song. You know, it just had all these components of a straightforward rock song, but that was interesting and melodic. That we just didn't have, and I was pissed off that I couldn't have a song like that to go out and play for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, first record is a great example. I came off of Euphoria Morning, which was really sort of somber and melancholy yeah. and melodic, although very complicated in terms of uh, in terms of guitar work musically, the most complicated album I've ever made. I got a lot of questions like that then you know so it, now you're doing Euphoria Morning this is your first thing since Soundgarden broke up so obviously we're going to assume this is what you'd rather be doing and my answers then were the same I was like no no this is just you know I was in an aggressive band for a long time and this was an opportunity to do some other stuff next thing I did was the first audio slave record which is extremely aggressive the most of the most aggressive of the three that we did so I'm always going to want to do that. I mean, uh, you know, part of that need and part, part of it gets sort of fulfilled by the fact that I do tour a lot and I do get to play aggressive songs nightly. But the songwriter in me is always going to want to do a lot of different things. A non-aggressive song
0: on the album, but one that I think is, is, is quite nice, is called Two Drink Minimum. Uh-huh. Is that
1: you playing guitar on there? No. Actually, that the only thing on there from the original session is the vocals. Okay. <laughs> Because what happened was, Jerome Harmon, who, was, who plays keyboards all over the album, was, he, it was sort of the 5 o'clock in the morning, kind of winding down on a recording session. He just started playing the melody of what the guitar melody is when you hear it, but he was playing it on keyboard, and it was kind of like a, a Stevie Wonder um, sort of chromatic harmonica sound. And I just quickly came up with the vocal melody and wrote the lyrics and sang it in you know one take over what he played. Really nice. And then when I actually wasn't there, they loved it. Tim loved it so much. Everybody loved it. They actually had a live band just come in and play to my singing, and that's what that ended up being. And, and uh, somehow or another, and I don't know how, you can maybe research this and help me out because no one's been able to tell me, but a lot of people think that John Mayer played on it. Did you uh, hear that? I did not hear that. Yeah, no. people ask me about the collaboration, which there wasn't one. I even actually tried to get him to play on it at the oh. last minute, thinking, now since, everyone, since there's a big rumor that he's played on it why not just get him to play? And then when they ask me, I can say, well, it was fantastic. Well, there's a, well, there's a, there's a live duet that can happen one day. Well, yes, can, and they made me call him, and now we're friends, so it,
0: it turned out really good. So now we can put out to the world, John Mayer, if you're listening, show up at a gig and, and, and play this song with him. Speaking of guitar players, I want to walk down memory lane here a uh-huh. little bit. You've worked with two pretty notable guitar players, Kim Thale and uh, Tom Morello
1: two very unique guitar players two uh, and also uh, you know in terms of people it's really unusual that I would end up in band situations with two people who are from like the suburban Chicago area that are really unusual guitar players that are college educated Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are like just, they're, they're, so, they're intellectuals, but They like, so many things in common. But, and they're completely different than each other. Absolutely. Um, as players. Re- as players and as people, it was really... I remember at one point, once I really started to get to know Tom, I'm thinking, God, it's really weird how there are so many similarities. And, you know, you always have to wonder, like, is there some, you know, is there some bigger picture? Is there a reason why <laughs> I am with someone like that? You know, because... To be honest, you know, there's a lot of knucklehead guitar players out there too. And and I include myself in that. I'm a super clumsy guitar player that learned how to play guitar based on the fact that I wanted to write songs so I could have a band that had good ones. Right. Instead of being in a lot of lousy bands, which is what my, up until Soundgarden, that was my life. And I, have, I seventh grade was the last year I finished school. <laughs> so it's been really a, a fortunate thing for me to be in bands with guitar players who are educated because, like, especially with Kim, the guy taught me... Uh, he, uh, he was a big influence on, on me as far as guitar playing goes. Right. Because I basically t- taught myself how to play guitar with him around, in the room. And, and I, you know, he's probably my biggest influence that way. But also, just as uh, being an intelligent, educated person, you couldn't be around someone like him and not become a smarter person or better for it, you know, especially coming from my background, which is I pretty much went at 14 into the blue-collar labor pool.
0: Have you spoken to Kim at all in recent years? Yeah, recently. So, things are okay? Yeah,
1: we've always been good friends. Everyone in the band, we
0: always have gotten along okay well. Recently, of course, on YouTube was uh, this big hit clip Mm -hmm. of Soundgarden with Tad mm-hmm. filling in for you and Tom Morello, so you basically yeah. have everybody that like you've played with except for Tad. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what was that like to see
1: them on the stage with Tad though? Oh, okay, because we toured together. So now, what was that like for you to see that? I thought it was really great. I didn't mm-hmm. actually see the t- one, the one, the Tom. Because um, they did Spoonman, but seeing, but seeing Tad was good same Tab with those guys was good because the the timing was kind of interesting. You know, I've done a couple of interviews recently about the 15 year anniversary, and I'm not really like an anniversary guy. Yeah, it's marking time is meaningless to me. But it now you know there's this. It's been 15 years since um, the passing of Kurt Cobain, and so you know why not when it was 11 years or when it's 26, whatever. Yeah. So and an even number, three groups of five. Um, but we were at, we were with the band Tad Soundgarden and Tad were touring together in Europe and so we were all together in the dressing room when we found out that Kurt had been found Wow! and this kind of to see them together now after doing these interviews it, it felt good it made sense to me especially you know I'm not in Seattle I don't live there I'm not around there and so it kind of felt to me just good and appropriate you know and, and um it it gave me a warm feeling. I've heard you say in other
0: interviews that if you were there at that gig, that you would have loved to have jumped on stage, and you even indicated that a Soundgarden reunion isn't out of the question.
1: Well, I've said it, you know, since we broke up, because I've pro- every interview I've done pretty much um, since 1998. I've, so that. Has been part of the subject, right? And it's the same answer always, which is like you know, I'm uh, I'm someone that is a realist. You never know, you know, what's gonna yeah. happen. Um, I mean, I'm I came from this Seattle underground scene and I just made it out with Timbaland so what I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and count out anything <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> but
0: I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is so there is no lasting bad blood between anybody there was There's never some... any
1: bad blood oh, okay uh, between any of us I think for me even and, and also that's the the case with Audio Slave the I've been on tour with a lot of bands yeah I've seen what it looks like when bands and members of those bands don't like each other I've seen it when they hate each other I've yeah. seen it when two key members of a legendary band are still touring and haven't spoken to each other face-to-face in over 15 years, and then we'll speak through their tour manager who's sitting between them. <laughs> so um, I think of Soundgarden and The Audioslave as being two bands that got along incredibly well in the world of rock bands, and not even that tumultuously, really, the only drama Soundgarden ever had is when we were, were all drunk at the same time and getting into silly drunken drama that happens. You know, no matter what, that's not real and doesn't yeah. matter. Which ends up in hugs and tears, <laughs> that kind of stuff. We we were actually sort of shocked as a band out on the road at how much other bands didn't really seem to like each other's company that much, and we were never like that. And and also my the thing that I really missed the most about Soundgarden and Audioslave really are the relationships with the guys and being out you know with them and and the bonding that you have especially with Soundgarden because it, it we started from playing small venues with nobody in them I mean there were there are actually moments in this Anvil movie that remind me of the early days of Soundgarden except for we were in our twenties instead of like instead of our fifties but <laughs> you know showing up at a venue. That's been set up by an indie label or an indie promoter, and no one's bothered to promote it, and there's nobody there, and I'm basically, we're playing to the janitor, you know, and going through that with them, to from that to where we finally ended up with Down the Upside, it, you, know, it, that's that's a, a lot to go through with with people, you know, those are experiences that that we all have together, that you know, that brought us together and bonded us in a way that's, you know, it's hard to compare to anything else. If you can put this into words, what was it like in those
0: early days of the quote-unquote grunge movement? I mean, you were there in the epicenter, you were part of the epicenter. Did you have any idea that
1: you were upending rock's status quo? No, no, not in the beginning. Because the, the, the true the true beginning of it, I think, was actually pre... Um, Nirvana, pre-Pearl Jam, um, pre-Mother Love Bone even, really, when the members of, you know, what ended up being Pearl Jam and Mudhoney were in a band called Green River. Sure, yeah. That was when we, everybody, we sort of aspired to be part of this mostly U.S. post-punk independent scene. That's what we wanted to do. And... When Green River put out a record on Homestead, it was like, it, it was a huge triumph. That was what we wanted to be a part of. And we were huge fans of different labels, and it was a really vibrant scene. And even now, if I listen to that music or YouTube those artists and see those moments, it's pretty damn vital and strong. And that's all that's what we aspired to, to be a part of. It wasn't until, I think, Kim Thiel introduced uh, Bruce Pabbit Who was someone that had a fanzine called Sub Pop? Sure. And and Jonathan Poneman, who was a local, became a local fixture. He's from Ohio, but he was a, a, I think he helped run the local college radio station and he was in a band himself and the songwriter himself. When Kim introduced those two, Jonathan wanted to sort of invest in the future of Soundgarden because he had some money and he wanted to really, you know, help us release a record. Kim thought, well, that's great, but you don't know anything about the world of indie records. But here's Bruce Pabbitt and he knows everything about it. So take your money. Go over here with the guy that knows what he's doing and together you guys will, can put out records and it will be great. And, and really that, was, that all came from Kim's mind, I think. And it was brilliant because together... Bruce knew everything about everything that was cool and hip, and John was like like the best A&R guy you'll ever know, right. and he started showing up with bands and music, and that was the first time he gave me a, uh, a copy of demos from um, Nirvana, which, which mm-hmm. ended up being really, most of it ended up being Bleach. And he kept showing up with stuff like that, and I, that was when I started to think, okay, this is really not like other places. That how do you keep finding these amazing bands and these amazing bands with like amazing singers and lyrics and and they're and they're real songs. And because at that point we had already uh, toured around the U.S. and Europe and, and played shows with a lot of local talent and not seen anything like what Seattle had. One sub pop. Sort of could give it a name and sort of present it, you know, via a label is when I think we all could kind of see, oh, this can change everything. This can be something that actually really has a huge impact. Even still, though, to uh, it took it's a kind of a cultural phenomenon that I don't care who you are, nobody could predict it, and a lot of it was MTV driven. I, I think MTV was camping on rock bands who were sort of larger than life. Really good looking people uh, with like hot sluts in the videos and amazing <laughs> expensive cars and doing a little bit of what hip hop does which is sort of separate the artist from its fans right. kind of. And to some degree fans like their rock stars to be larger than life. Sure. When I met Brian May I was thrilled that he was taller than me and he had a like floor length overcoat and he looked like a fucking rock star like you're supposed to. I was thrilled. Um, but the first time MTV showed um, a Nirvana video, for example, here's a song that is better than most of these other hair metal bands. Um, more aggressive, intelligent lyrics, and yet the the singer-guitar player is like five foot two. The bass player is like six foot eight. And, and the drummer um, you know it's this long haired creepy looking guy that looked like their audience sure. and I think that was where the match struck it was the, the audience and it was a cultural phenomenon the audience made that choice based on that and a lot of it was MTV driven I think the same thing happened with Soundgarden same thing happened with Pearl Jam people saw it on TV and visually that helped the leap from what it sounds like to who the people are and then that that made the whole thing really happen plus everything has to be at the proper
0: time I mean when the Beatles came came out they were here at the right time sure you know so it was the it was the right time to flush all that other stuff away and here is Mm -hmm the new wave so to speak
1: yeah so there's there's something cyclical about it there's something you know I, even then I knew okay somehow what we're doing is going to be homogenized and bastardized and turned into what will be then in you know, the commercial rock norm and I can't imagine how that will happen and what that will be and then I heard Creed and I went oh that's it <laughs> and what's funny is that there's still a lot of rock music that gets played on rock radio stations right now that's very much derivative of that of a combination of all of the Seattle bands, and there are some other bands you have to include. I, I think that the Seattle and sub-pop was a big part of it. There are a lot of other bands that that were included in that, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, Faith No More, uh, Jane's Addiction was hu- hugely a part of that um, shift in thinking. I think Metallica was. Yeah. I even think Guns N' Roses was. Um, Guns N' Roses and Metallica, you know, to... Uh, sort of to different audiences kind of helped the public consciousness, not even so much the public, but the publications and television and radio sort of introduced them to the idea that maybe fans would like something a little less pristine and polished and and made up, you know, and and maybe a little bit more real. Because, like, if you're growing up in a blue-collar existence in the Midwest, there's something about celebrating the larger-than-life look of a hair metal band performance and that sort of god above you that you can worship but there's also something to relating to the the music that you listen to I think that comes around in cycles
0: So last question How sick are you of this Trent Reznor Twitter business?
1: Well it's really like I actually never even read whatever it is that he said so I don't know even what it was but I think it's not a surprising thing to me, it's sort of been, if anything, kind of good because it gets people talking about my record, and I think it's a this album is like it's a huge challenge for me to get people to really listen to and get into, and actually, you know, give it a chance, listen to the whole thing. And I know just from personal friends and experience already that there's some people who are going to hate it, just based on the concept of it. There are some people who are, are going to honestly hate it just because they don't like it, and they don't like music generated by synths and, and drum loops, or if they do, they, they prefer it to be a more aggressive version, whatever. That's fair. To, to hate it conceptually without giving a chance is silly, but, you know, there's there's people like that. And there are people who legitimately didn't like it and listen to it, and it's become one of their favorite albums, and they're huge fans of mine. And then there's also people who don't know me from Adam who discovered the album because it's musically different and has reached different places who love it. So, you know, it's done all those things. But getting getting people to talk about it, getting people to um, be interested in it, if, even with negativity, that draws people to it, right, right. you know, because it gets people talking. And the best thing about it for me, and I really can tell you, quite honestly, I'm really happy to be sitting here today talking about um, music and having an album like this out, as opposed to talking about an album that I think is you know, very similar to something I did a year ago, or five right. years ago, or ten years ago. Um, and and uh, to me, you know, this is one of the most vital periods of my career. I don't know if you, what, what, what the best word would be, that controversy, which seems like a silly word, if, but if you want to use that word, you know, the, the controversy surrounding it, is that a bad thing. And, I, and I, don't, I don't think it'll ever... I don't think it'll affect my choices that I make musically. And the exciting thing about it is A, seeing new fans, B, seeing the faces of people when I'm performing the songs live, and they see it sort of actually how it does all kind of fit in with who I am personally. And it's... At the end of the day, I'm not someone that you can easily compare to anybody else in, in rock music or popular music... Period, and then in some ways that's a good thing. In some ways, it's not a good thing. But <laughs> I'm a, I've been sort of a restless guy who has a huge uh, uh, record collection and wants to participate in lots of different kinds of music, as opposed to just uh, being an audience member. You know, it's like if I was watching baseball and soccer and football and basketball, and you know, I want to play them too. Right. You know, it's it's that and. You know, I will never forget my fans, which is why I play three-hour shows and mm-hmm. do my whole catalog, and I, and I will never lose touch with music generated by guitars or aggressive music generated by guitars, to be honest. I mean, it's that's, that's always going to be a part of, of what I'm interested in, um, but it's always mm-hmm. only going to be a part of it.
0: Well, Chris, thank you very much. The, uh, the record is called Scream, Chris Cornell's new record. This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, and I've been speaking with Chris Cornell. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you.